panoramic lifestyle clothing. Hey, look alive! Everything lights up, makes you want to shout. Talk about happiness, that's what we're talking about. You'll look great in a panoramic lifestyle t-shirt. No matter what brings you happiness, but we know we'll. Come on now, smile, get happy. Order your t-shirt today at plclothing.store. plclothing.store. Good morning and welcome to Sunday Digest, the public affairs presentation of FM 99.5 WGAR, Cleveland's country music station. I'm Ken Robinson. On today's edition of Sunday Digest, we'll talk to a psychologist about self-esteem. What is it and how it can affect your quality of life? We'll also take a look at drunk driving and what you can do to keep a friend from driving drunk. It's all coming up next on Sunday Digest. Did you know that drunk driving kills 17,000 Americans every year? The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is now targeting party hosts in their effort to keep drunks off our roads. The idea is to make hosts responsible for making sure their guests don't kill themselves or anyone else. Dr. Ricardo Martinez joins us this morning. He's head of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Dr. Martinez, what are you telling party hosts this year? One of the things we wanted to do was to remind people, increase their awareness, that when you have a party... You should be a responsible host. You can take action. And things you can do, for example, is offer non-alcoholic beverages as an alternative. Serve food to your guests. Do not just host an open bar, but try to control the amount of alcoholic beverages being served. If someone starts to have too much alcohol, you can stop or intervene at that point in time. The last thing is make sure you consider how people are getting home. You know, many people drive to a, to a party. And if you serve alcoholic beverages, you really have a responsibility to make sure you consider how they get home either arrange rides or ask for designated drivers or maybe even offer a cab service or offer to pay the cab, uh, something along those lines. Yeah, also there's the, the designated driver. That's always uh, been a, a good method of uh, keeping people uh, from running into accidents and getting behind the wheel when they shouldn't. Well, the important point is think about it. You can, you can drink too much, but you're not a drunk driver until you get behind the wheel. So we found through research is that the friends are a powerful influence and what you can do is intervene as a friend. So we're asking friends to not let friends drive drunk. Now, so often people feel apprehensive about uh, curbing a, a friend's drinking or uh, telling them that they've had enough or telling them that they can't drive. They, they don't want to seem like a, a party pooper or, uh, or, or like they're coming down hard on, on, on their friend. That's exactly right, and that's one of, one of the strengths of our current campaign, the Innocent Victim Campaign. We're not just talking about these numbers or these we're talking about real people, mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers. The videotapes and the pictures show you that those are real people. So when you have to make that decision whether to intervene or not, you can say, you know, I'm saving someone's life here, and it may be the driver, it may be the victim, but there's something you can do, and we're asking people to take that step. It's, it's something you will all be thankful for. Drunk driving takes 17,000 lives every year in the United States. 17,000 deaths per year. That's 300, over 300 per week. It really is a neglected epidemic. 
Now, if that many people were dying of AIDS in the United States every year, that there'd be a public outcry. Oh, yeah, and, and well, there should be. Uh, I think it's important to keep these numbers in front of people so we don't lose the perspective. Now, what about uh, drug driving? We, we often hear about the drug problem in the United States, but we, we don't often relate that to uh, the, the growth of uh, traffic accidents as well, people using drugs and getting out on the road. Well, let's look at it from the, from the you, you hear a little bit about drowsy driving also, but the big dog really is drunk driving. That's the drug of choice in this country. It's 43% of fatal crashes are alcohol-related. That's a pretty high number. It's, it's, it's a way too high number. Now, the interesting point is, is that in some states it's down in the 30s, and in some states as high as 60. So each little bit that someone does affects their own state, which affects the whole national picture. Do you think uh, we'll really be able to get a handle on this problem when society decides to, 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 to uh, present alcohol consumption as something that is, is not exactly cool and hip? Oh, absolutely. You know, I don't even use the word accident. Because these things aren't accidents. These are, these are predictable and preventable. I use crashes. So when you see a driver, I should say a car and a person who's drunk, you can intervene and keep them out of that thing. And as society is beginning to learn the tricks, you know, there's this focus on personal responsibility. Personal responsibility demands that you take appropriate action. Very often at parties when uh, a, a host will serve uh, non-alcoholic drinks, uh, that's viewed as the corny drink, uh, the, uh, the, the sissy drink, uh, the, the real party people drink the alcohol. That image has to change, too, doesn't it? Well, that's a very difficult image sometimes because it's uh, sometimes uh, popularized uh, in some of our, our, our media uh, or through the, the culture. But, you know, that is changing. That's changing a lot. As a matter of fact, only about 60% uh, of our population even drinks alcohol at all, about 30%. 35% of staying, and that varies from place to place. So why not make non-alcoholic beverages available for those who choose not to drink? Let them choose not to drink if they want to. And then support them in that choice. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, once again, what are the tips for uh, preventing drunk driving? Well, if you're going to be a give a party, we ask that you be a responsible host and that you offer non-alcoholic beverages as an alternative to your guest and serve food with your uh, at your party so that there's uh, food finds alcohol. Never host an open bar. Uh, try to control the amount of alcoholic beverages served. If someone's drinking too much or had too much, intervene at that point in time. Never serve alcoholic beverages to anyone under 21 years old. And make sure you consider how someone's going to get home. Designate a driver, do some carpooling, arrange rides, call a cab, offer to pay fare, or even let them stay over at your house. Those are the things you can do that make a strong difference. All right, we thank you for joining us today. Dr. Ricardo Martinez, head of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. He's also an emergency physician who's seen the results of drunk driving firsthand. And you're listening to Sunday Digest on FM 99.5 WGAR, Cleveland's country music station. I'm Ken Robinson. Hey, how's your self-esteem? Did you know that it can affect your job, your relationships, even your quality of life? Dr. Kenneth Beavers joins us now. He's a clinical psychologist based in Columbus, and he's also author of The Self-Esteem Guidebook. First of all, Dr. Beavers, uh, exactly what is self-esteem? Okay, well, we have a very simple definition. Uh, we say that self-esteem is the way that you feel about yourself. That's different than, say, self-concept, which is what you think about yourself or that sum total of knowledge of facts about who you are. 
And a critical thing about the way you feel about yourself is that uh, we know now that you must feel good about who you are, and if you don't, then you can't feel good. So that really is kind of the crux of the problem. What's the difference between self-esteem and confidence? Well, they're really two different things, although some people use self-esteem and confidence uh, interchangeably. Um, you could, for example, be confident. You're normally confident about something. For example, you could be confident that uh, tomorrow when you go into work, you will do a good job or a decent job. Well, that would be confident about something. But at the same time, you could also have a long-term, very deep and abiding, low self-esteem. Even though you're confident about something in particular, you could still have a deep-seated sense of inferiority or insecurity about who you are. And that's what self-esteem is about. And when we look at a successful person, is it uh, reasonable to assume that they have high self-esteem? Well, you know, it's funny. That's a good question because uh, much of the time we think in just the opposite way that, in fact, many highly successful people may really have gotten there because they were battling with or fighting or fending off low self-esteem. In other words, in order to prove something to themselves or to other people, they were uh, maybe very hard-driven people. And there are a lot of folks like that out there because of these insecurities that are a part of low self-esteem that actually uh, help them to become successful. The problem with that is that when you're driven by low self-esteem, there usually comes a, a big price with any success. Now, how can a person tell if they have high self-esteem or, or low self-esteem? Okay. Well, one of the things we do, for example, in the self-esteem guidebook, we really have a formal measure. So we have people measure their self-esteem. And uh, what they do is they uh, answer questions, true or false questions, let me give you an example or two. Um, uh, true or false, I am not worried about looking old. Uh, true or false, I believe that I am fairly intelligent. Uh, true or false, I seldom think about my personal flaws. And what we do is, with this measure, we uh, score it in uh, a variety of ways so people can uh, sort of have a uh, better idea of where their self-esteem is today and also uh, how it changes from situation to situation. Can a person examine their behavior and, and how they carry themselves uh, day by day and how they deal with other people and determine whether or not they have uh, lower or high self-esteem? Well, yes, uh, most certainly. Uh, behavior is one of the things that we want to look at when we're uh, trying to determine self-esteem and the problems that low self-esteem causes. For example, let's say that you're a person who is uh, uh, you notice that you're very nervous when entering a room full of people. Uh, you tend to read people's minds. I know what they're thinking about me. They're noticing that I'm overweight or they're noticing that uh, my nose is big or that I was the last to arrive. Um, so uh, behaviors that uh, bring out anxiety or avoidance, like, well, I'd really like to go out with that person, but I'm, I'm too afraid to ask them out. Well, that fear of rejection really is an outgrowth of low self-esteem. Or let's say you're a person who uh, apologizes, for example, all the time. Everything you do, I'm sorry. I'm sorry this happened. I'm sorry that happened. I'm sorry for the weather. Uh, but then the opposite of that would be a person who can never apologize. They also are suffering from low self-esteem because it's the person who truly is self-accepting or at peace with themselves who, uh, who can sometimes be wrong and sometimes feel free to admit that. So certainly many behaviors are controlled by this need to feel good about who we are. 
Now, it seems like uh, self-esteem really has a bearing on, on one station in life. Uh, uh, it can uh, determine uh, what kind of person you are, what kind of circumstances uh, y you find yourself in as, as far as a uh, job or relationships, marriage or, or whatever. Well, it, you know, it really does. Um, let's take, for example, um, choosing a life partner, choosing a spouse, a husband or wife. Um, you figure that we know through research that low self-esteem people tend to marry low self-esteem people. So your self-esteem is probably about the same level as your spouse's self-esteem. But, for example, let's say that you don't feel good about who you are. Well, you may feel that, well, I don't have much to offer in a relationship. I'm not very attractive. I'm not very appealing. I'm not very smart. I'm not exciting. And so you may set your sights very low in terms of who you look for, who you might, let's say, settle to be with because you don't feel that you have much to offer in the first place. Now, you see, we're saying that you don't feel that you have much to offer. That may or may not be true because these feelings about yourself may or may not be based in reality. There are very successful, very attractive, very sharp individuals who feel quite low about who they are. And I would imagine the same thing would be true for uh, choosing a career or, or choosing a, a place to work. Well, certainly, and again, we're looking at the, the uh, situation where a person may undershoot or sort of underestimate their own abilities, their own capacity. Uh, for example, let's say, oh, I, I, I'd like to go back to school, and, and I didn't go to college at all, and I'd like to, I'd like to get a degree, but, gee, uh, you know, uh, college people are so smart, and I'm not sure I, I'd be up there, and I'm, I'm so afraid of failure because I already feel bad enough about myself. And then, then see, a person may hold themselves back, not advance, not get the education, not afford themselves the opportunities that really might be out there because those basic insecurities can, can actually be paralyzing and holding them back from advancement. Now, is self-esteem something that uh, we're born with or something that uh, we're, we're conditioned to when we're, when we're growing up? Yeah, I really don't think we're, we're born with low self-esteem. I think we're born with certain dispositions and certain ways of, of, of being sensitive to things around us. But we do uh, believe that self-esteem is developed and formed when you're very young, probably somewhere between infancy and toddlerhood. And what happens here very briefly in our theory is that um, a toddler who, at, when they were born and as they were infants, they were allowed to do pretty much anything they wanted to. They could throw their food or go in their pants and that sort of thing. But later on, they begin to be chastised and corrected and even punished for their behavior. And so I think most children end up linking themselves with their behavior so that um, they begin to believe and feel about themselves that bad behavior means that they are bad. And it's this abiding sense of being somehow bad or defective or falling short that those feelings we carry into adulthood. So those same uh, feelings of low self-esteem that we may have had very early as a child stick with us into adulthood. The names and faces change as our circumstances change, but those deep-down feelings are usually very old within us. And I guess that would vary according uh, uh, from child to child. Some children would just shake all that off and go about their merry way, and other kids would uh, would would become uh, sensitized to it. Sure, and and also, you know, you have to remember that there are circumstances that are going to help self-esteem. I mean, we, if we have a supportive uh, and loving parent, we have a secure environment. We have, for example, parents whose self-esteem 
is decent enough that they're not threatened every time we uh, somehow uh, go against what they're telling us to do. Uh, so, yes, it really is kind of a blend, again, of that disposition that we're born with, those sensitivities, and what happens in our, in our, child, in our childhood, how we are raised. Now, let's suppose somebody listening to the radio today says, boy, he hit me right on the head. I'm one of those low self-esteem people. What can they do to uh, build their self-esteem back up? Well, uh, I mean, besides uh, take a look at the uh, self-esteem guidebook, <laughs> we, um, we encourage people to do a number of things. Um, one of the things that we teach people is uh, an exercise in self-forgiveness. What we want people to learn to do is to look back at their past mistakes, and rather than continuing to self-punish, which so many of us do by uh, keeping the memories alive of the things we've done wrong, keeping the guilt going, and uh, believing that we've done the worst kinds of things, is to engage in exercise of self-forgiveness where people learned uh, what we teach people to do is to look at uh, not only their own behavior, but also the circumstances at the time that the mistake occurred, uh, their state of mind, uh, what, uh, what they were feeling, what they knew at the time. See, you know, again, um, hindsight is twenty twenty, and it's so easy to look back and chastise yourself for things you've done wrong. But sometimes, uh, so many times in life, we cannot really fully atone for things that we may have done wrong. Sometimes the only thing left to do is to self-forgive. But very often people need to be taught uh, both when and how to do this self-forgiveness. So that's just one of a, a number of, of exercises and strategies that we teach people. Uh, we, we do seminars on self-esteem and, and in, in my private practice and through the book. We teach people this and, and other exercises uh, for changing self-esteem. So basically just don't be so hard on yourself and and you can't go back in the past and change what's, what's already been done. No, you can't change it, but maybe you can look at it in a new way in order to help yourself to let go of it. That really very often is the key. Now, what about uh, raising kids? Uh, is there anything parents can do in particular to raise kids with uh, high self-esteem? Well, certainly, and I'm almost always asked this question because parents, uh, and rightly so, are worried about the self-esteem of their children. I think most of the time they're concerned their children are going to have low self-esteem like they do, basically. But what I tell parents are several things. One is the best thing you can do for your child's self-esteem is to make sure your own house is in order. In other words, make sure that your self-esteem, especially your self-esteem as it relates to parenting, is in good shape itself. Um, model high self-esteem. Model confidence. Um, because it is the it is the self-accepting parent who isn't so easily threatened and scared every time the the two-year-old uh, says no or it stands in defiance of of, of a parental order. Uh, the other thing I encourage parents to do is avoid the obvious, um, the the um, uh, harsh punishment, the abusive kinds of things, the name calling. Avoid um, punishment that may involve humiliation or embarrassment. And when you talk to the child, you want to, the best that you can, and, and all parents are imperfect, uh, the best that you can, separate the child from their behavior. I love you, but I cannot accept, and we cannot have that kind of behavior, so that the child learns to um, see that behavior is simply a, a part of self, it isn't the entirety of self, and that bad behavior doesn't mean bad me. So it, it's these kinds of things that we teach parents. And I guess parents should realize that they were probably uh, 
probably had the same types of behavior that uh, their kids had, and they probably forgot about some of the things that's, that they used exactly to do right. when they were young. Yeah. And, you know, one, one point I do want to make is that we do teach people to look back at childhood and look at the origins of their own self-esteem, but we're really not into parent bashing, per se. I think uh, looking back and saying, oh, gee, my parents did this and they did that, and it's all their fault, and then I'm, I'm angry, and that's the answer. That, well, that really isn't an answer. I think it's important to look back to maybe figure out what might have gone wrong, which may not always be flattering to your parents, but I think then you become responsible to move beyond that and do something about what happened to you as a child in terms of healing. And, and, and what we believe is so often that healing has to do with improving your self-esteem. Okay, we'll skip the parent bashing. Uh, how about a little uh, media bashing? There's a uh, chapter in the uh, self-esteem guidebook entitled Messages from the Media. Right. What's that about? Right. Now, media bashing, I believe, is okay. I think that's, a, that's appropriate because what we want people to do is to begin to look at, for example, uh, the best example really is television commercials. You know, what does the media tell you? What does Madison Avenue tell you? Well, it says that unless you, uh, you know, have uh, day-glow teeth and perfectly shiny hair and you're very thin and you're young and you're wealthy and you have lots of friends and you can drink alcohol without becoming intoxicated, all these things that say you have to be and you have to do and you have to live up to this image, uh, this is what Madison Avenue does. They manipulate your self-esteem in order to, to part you from your wallet. They're very good at that. They know that that works. But what we want people to learn to do is rather than take in these, these, these commercial images and compare yourself and say, well, gee, I'm falling short somehow, and, the, and these images really do get to you whether you want them to or not, rather than looking inward and saying, gee, I'm defective, what we teach people to do through the book, for example, is to look at the media messages themselves and begin to be critical of those messages. Say, well, it isn't me that is so defective. What is defective and, and absurd are the messages that they are trying to infiltrate my mind with, and it's, and it's at those messages that I need to become more critical, not more critical at, toward myself. What about uh, sports in the media? I notice uh, uh, watching a football game, if a guy makes a fumble, uh, a crucial uh, uh, blunder in a game, uh, boy, that... Uh, that error is replayed over and over and over again on the news, and <laughs> it's got to be pretty humiliating for the person who, who does that. But sure. is that, uh, what does that say about self-esteem? Sure. Well, I, I think the key there is that, well, audiences, for one thing, are very demanding, whether you're in music or drama or sports. Anytime there's an audience, audiences are extremely demanding. But the key for the individual in terms of their self-esteem is, is to avoid buying into the standards that other people, for example, an audience may set. So you may say, well, gee, I, you know, I fumble the football, and that makes me the go to the game. On the other hand, you could say, hey, I'm one of a very, very few uh, persons on this planet that is, uh, that is capable and good enough to play professional football, and maybe I need to pay attention to that, uh, not only the, the uh, occasional errors that I've made. Good advice for Browns fans. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's also a couple of chapters in your book about special problems for, for men and women. Are there special problems dealing with self-esteem for uh, the sexes? Yes. What I do, for example, in my, in my seminars, I, I, which usually consists of both men and women, I will ask, for whom is it more difficult to have high self-esteem, men or women? Uh, to whom does society put the greater downward pressure on self-esteem for men or women? And we'll have, we'll have hands uh, raised on both sides. Well, it's harder for men, it's harder for women. Well, what we've determined is that man, being a man is hard on 
hard on your self-esteem, but also being a woman is hard on your self-esteem, that each gender has particular kinds of, uh, say, society standards or society messages having to do with um, uh, ideal uh, masculinity or ideal femininity that hurts both men and women. So that, for example, men, if you're not handy, if you're not mechanical, if you're not uh, macho in certain ways, that can have downward pressure on, on self-esteem. Whereas with women, if you're not, say, um, uh, uh, soft and, and nurturant or domestic or uh, um, uh, uh, you know, ideals about your appearance, then somehow you are falling short because you're not meeting this uh, extremely high standard involved with femininity. And again, what we want people to do is to question the message, question these standards that have been set really by somebody else, rather than questioning yourself. Okay. And um, I was going to ask about uh, obesity and uh, self-esteem. The Clinton administration um, is targeting uh, obese folks around the country uh, saying that the country as a whole needs to do more to reduce uh, the overweight condition. Uh, they cite health problems. Uh, of course, uh, obesity does lead to a lot of uh, heart problems and, and other health difficulties. But there are some obese people who are saying, well, this is, this is unfair and that the fat people are being targeted uh, with, without uh, regard to, to how they feel about being overweight. How does uh, obesity affect self-esteem, and, and how does society look at that? Well, um, this is a particular area of interest in mine, that is obesity and self-esteem. I'm more in the camp, the latter camp that you talked about, which would be uh, similar to a group, for example, the National Association for the Advancement of Fat Acceptance. Their notion, very similar to mine, is that weight loss per se is not always the goal for someone who is significantly overweight that uh, many, many overweight people are, you know, the reality is they can't or never will be of optimal weight, but do they have to live out a miserable life, uh, living with society's prejudices and, and living with their own uh, terrible feelings about themselves? So I'm in the camp of, uh, of at, at first, becoming self-accepting no matter where your weight is, and then later, after reaching that place of inner peace, you do want to lose weight, well, that would be fine. But at least if that, at that point you're, not, you're losing weight, you're doing it for reasons other than uh, it'll make you a better person or for cosmetic reasons. You may, do, you may lose weight later on, but you will do it because you feel that you merit it, you deserve it. It's a, it's a self-care taking thing to do to lose weight. But what I advocate first is get to that place of self-acceptance no matter where your weight is, and then if you want to change it, fine. And it goes back to the uh, situation with the media. Uh, you don't see very many uh, overweight uh, movie stars on, uh, in the movies or on TV. And, uh, of course, we know there are perfectly good and talented people who are overweight. That's right. And, it's, and the same thing is going to happen in the job world with job discrimination. Uh, uh, there's discrimination against obesity when people go to rent an apartment, for example. It, it really is rampant. And that will produce tremendous downward pressure on the self-esteem of those individuals. Do you think people are becoming more aware of how important uh, self-esteem is? Uh, I, I do. There is a, a so-called self-esteem movement uh, about which I, I think I have some mixed feelings. But I think people are becoming more aware of how important an issue it is. One of the reasons that it's so important is how common it is for people to struggle with this issue. 
in the area of psychology, there are no true universals. Not everybody suffers from any one thing. But the closest thing to a universal are the, the, the I think, majority of us walking around out there who really struggle with significant, what we call insecurities, but basically comes down to this struggle with uh, low self-esteem. And so I don't think that there's any more important thing you can really do for yourself in the way of self-help or the way of self-care than to address that issue, change your self-esteem, because many other things can then follow suit, changing uh, for the better in your life. Now, you un I understand that you feel that uh, self-esteem is also related to the AIDS crisis. Well, I do in, in the sense that um, promiscuity or having many sexual partners so often has to do with not really the sex drive per se as much as it has to do with acceptance. Somebody finds me appealing. Somebody's turned on by me. Somebody wants to be with me. I don't have to be lonely tonight. And so I feel like people who are not self-accepting in, in, the, in the full sense of the word that we mean, that is they don't have high self-esteem, are more likely to have multiple sexual partners sort of seeking that acceptance, seeking that approval, which then leads them to uh, trouble uh, via the sexually transmitted diseases, of one of which, of course, is AIDS. Well, we want to thank you for joining us this morning on Sunday Digest, Dr. Beavers. That's Dr. Kenneth Beavers, a clinical psychologist from Columbus. He's author of the Self-Esteem Guidebook, published by Galloway Press. Dr. Beavers is also a member of the American and Ohio Psychological Associations. And that's today's edition of Sunday Digest. Sunday Digest is a public affairs presentation of FM 99.5 WGAR, Cleveland's country music station. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can write Sunday Digest, WGAR 5005, Rockside Road, Cleveland 44131. Or you can give us a call during regular business hours. We'll be happy to talk to you. I'm Ken Robinson, thanking you for listening, hoping you'll join us next time for Sunday Digest. Welcome to Ken's Corner. I'm Ken Robinson. Habitat for Humanity continues to build houses for those in need. John Habit runs the Greater Cleveland chapter and says the houses they construct not only change lives, but the impact is not just one generation, it's multiple generations. It's just not one family, it's the many families on that street where there's a stable home with a stable family with kids going to the same school year after year. So we're a piece of the puzzle, but we're a very critical piece of the puzzle. And you're not going to solve a lot of problems to you solve the issue of permanent, stable housing. And I bet more people are going to be helped in Cleveland now than ever before. More will be. And you know what? More needs to be. Because as much as we do in stretch, we need to keep stretching because the need is so profound. Because once, once a family has their own house, things start to happen in that family. The parents or parent goes back to school. The kids do better in school. There's better economic outcomes. There's better educational outcomes. And there's better health outcomes. Because a lot of our families come to us with issues, health issues, such as asthma and uh, running into um, rodent infestation, maybe lead. Lead happens frequently. That's good news. That's great news. And uh, hopefully uh, maybe this will get some more volunteers to, to pitch in, too. We love volunteers. And we love the donations to support our volunteers because your volunteers, as much work as they could do, they need materials. They need trucks to deliver the materials to them. They need skilled workers who can show them what to do because we can take a volunteer with no skills and turn that volunteer 
into a productive volunteer. John Habit of Habitat for Humanity of Greater Cleveland. Thanks for stopping by Ken's Corner. And please subscribe to our podcast series, The Ken Robinson Shows.